Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically-oriented material, that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. My name is Patrick Georgioff, Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today, I'm joined by Jason Brill, also a Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas in Houston and a Lieutenant Commander in the United States Navy. Today, we are going to continue our discussion about trauma resuscitation strategies. That's right. We are going to dive deep into thrombilastography and the reversal of common anticoagulants. As usual, I need to start with a disclaimer that the information, content, and conclusions in this episode do not necessarily represent the official position of, nor should any official endorsement be inferred by, the United States Navy, the Department of Defense, nor the U.S. government. All right, Jason, let's say that you have a patient who's involved in a motor vehicle crash, okay? They're hypotensive, and they have a positive FAST. You've already given two units of PAC cells and two units of FFP through a large bore central line. Whole blood is not available, but a massive transfusion pack has arrived, and you start making your way to the operating room. In the OR, more blood is hung in one-to-one-to-one fashion. You open the belly, and it's full of blood. There's a grade 4 liver injury that is actively bleeding, pack the liver, and you peek over the drape to discuss what you have found with your anesthesia colleagues. So as part of this discussion, you ask to see the results of the TAG that was drawn in the trauma bay. Right, TAG. TAG stands for thom- uh, thrombilastography. All right, uh, so you said, we just talked about this, so thrombilastography. Yeah, there's no O after the B that's often commonly misspelled, and in fact, there are many papers in the literature out there. So when you do a search for TAG, you actually need to include both thromboelastography and thromboelastography. This is kind of a spelling side note. With Rotem, it's rotational thromboelastometry, oh but, but TEG, you know, just go to the uh, Humanetics website. It's thromboelastography. Right, anyway, so, there, we'll, so there's we'll two TEG manufacturers, tag. right? Well, uh, so two manufacturers of viscoelastic tests. So okay. uh, TEG is the brand name of uh, the test manufactured by Humanetics, and the other is Rotem. Uh, Rotem is similar to TAG, uh, but there are some differences we probably won't get into discussion into today. As an overgeneralization, TAG is more common here in the U.S., and Rotem generally more common in Europe. Right. So when you hear viscoelastic testing, someone is usually referring to TAG and, and Rotem, as just discussed. And TAG assesses the viscoelastic properties of clot formation in real time. So you can think of it like this. So the test synthesizes information you could obtain from multiple coagulation tests like PT, PTT, thrombin time, fibrinogen level, and platelet count into a single readout, providing information regarding clot initiation, clot strength, and fibrinolysis. That's right. So to assess clotting, a small cup of blood that has been activated with a reagent uh, like kaolin or tissue factor rotates around a central pin that senses torque. In other words, the pull of the clot as it starts to resist movement around that central pin is Hmm. sensed via an electromagnetic uh, inducer. At least that's the current generation, the way it works. 
And so you get a readout of the viscoelastic properties of the clot. Now, historically, TEG has been used most extensively in the OR during cardiac and liver transplant operations. And, and the literature is clear that in those settings, TEG reduces transfusion requirements because it allows you to identify what products the patient needs to correct their coagulation profile. More recently, TEG has also been taken up by trauma surgeons. So, Patrick, let's talk about some data regarding TEG specifically in trauma. Sure, sure. So, Gonzalez and colleagues at Denver recently published the only randomized trial in trauma patients comparing TEG to conventional clotting uh, um, tests and use that to guide resuscitation in their patients. Uh, And these patients were all predicted to require a massive transfusion. So, this this trial was called the goal-directed a hemostatic resuscitation of trauma-induced coagulopathy trial. Now, again, I said this is the only randomized trial. And they showed a survival benefit at 28 days post-injury, as well as less transfused plasma and platelets in patients receiving TEG-guided resuscitation. Proponents of TEG-guided resuscitation really like this RCT. In all fairness, though, there are some critics, uh, and just to present a balanced portrayal, the survival benefit was remarkable. So the TEG group had just over half of the mortality rate compared to conventional testing. And that's a, it's a fair question to ask if such a profound effect is really just due to TEG guiding the blood product resuscitation. Right. Now, a couple of recent meta-analyses have also tried to summarize the data out there. So Wilkelso in 2017 and DS in 2019 both found that TEG decreased transfusion requirements in surgical patients, but the vast majority of these patients were during elective cardiac and liver cases, and a minority of them actually um, were receiving a resuscitation in an emergency or or traumatic setting. Right. So to summarize then, this is an area of active study and ongoing research. Without a doubt. So we use it here in Houston, and as you'll find out in the next few minutes, there are some times that it really can make a big difference. Okay. Now, um, I may be opening a whole can of worms here, but what are the practical advantages of TEG, Jason, over PT, PTT, and INR, uh, which was the control group of that study that we mentioned in Denver? I will try to keep it brief and not get on my soapbox. The problem, you know, conventional COAG tests were never meant for evaluation of a trauma patient where where time truly matters. They examined very isolated parts of a very complex web resulting eventually in coagulation. So just as an example, PT and PTT tests are considered complete after only 5% of the available thrombin has been generated. So basically, you miss the contribution of the other 95% of this contribution to eventual fibrin formation. They also take too long. Definitely. So the mean time to getting these values is around 88 minutes, at least according to some recent multicenter trials. And TEG is, is real-time, right, and potentially right. point of care. Yeah, and the first values in rapid TEG, at least, give you info, at least in the preliminary variables, within just a few minutes. And really, no other type of testing out there reliably shows clot lysis. So we'll focus on that a little bit more later. Patrick, can you walk me through how we use TEG from a practical standpoint? All right. So, so when it comes to TEG in trauma, clinical applicability really centers on guiding massive transfusion and identifying trauma-induced coagulopathy. So two things, guiding massive transfusion and identifying trauma-induced coagulopathy. In either circumstance, serial testing is helpful, if not critical, to this test tag being actually useful. 
So, for example, on arrival to the trauma bay and intermittently thereafter as the patient gets treated in the OR or maybe in the ICU where they continue to receive large volumes of resuscitation, we want to check serial tags to help guide what we're going to give next. Yeah, I I agree with that. Now, uh, here we run a rapid tag in the trauma bay. Just to go over the differences, a a standard tag, also called a Kalin tag, um, just adds Kalin as the activating reagent, um, you know, for your... uh, you know, cocktail party tidbits to impress your colleagues. Uh, Kaolin is just a type of clay, and it's what is the activator in a standard a volcanic rock, if it, right? And there you go. All right. So much knowledge here. So uh, rapid tag, on the other hand, uses both Kaolin and tissue factor, both of which are added to that sample at time zero. So the clotting process should start basically immediately, typically within two minutes. There are several other types of tags as well, including a way to look specifically at platelet contribution. Uh, There's also a way to remove the effect of heparin uh, and a way to examine fibrinogen uh, all by itself. So to keep the discussion focused on initial resuscitation, we'll keep referring to to a rapid tag in this this, uh, section here. So Jason, we've sent a tag on our trauma patient. How do I read this graph and, and interpret these results? So let's take a minute to review the information TEG tells us and how we would use that information in a a bleeding patient to answer that question. The test gives you a tracing in real time showing the progression of time versus how much the clot is pulling on that wire suspended in the sample cup. Right. So first is our time for a KLN TEG. This is the time it takes for initiation of the clotting cascade. More specifically, it's the time it takes the tracing lines to split and reach an amplitude of 2 millimeters. I'd recommend to our listeners to do a quick search online and bring up an image uh, and look at a tag tracing uh, while we're going through this just because the visuals kind of help. You don't just get numbers. You actually get a line, and the way that 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 curve looks can also give you some information about the the clotting cascade. Right, so, so let's move on to activated clotting time, or ACT. Uh, this is often the term used for reporting this in a, in a rapid tag. And remember, tissue factor is added to run this test, so AT, ACT is measured in seconds. Um, our time in ACT relies on clotting factors, so uh, if these are prolonged, you would give plasma. Again, so, I think that's worth repeating, right? If our time or ACT are prolonged, you want to give clotting factors back because we're measuring the initiation of clot. And the most readily available way to give that is plasma. Suggested cutoffs for a standard tag is an R time under 10 minutes and a rapid tag uh, under one minute. So those are considered the the normal values. Uh, ACT cutoff is around 125 seconds. So anything over 125 seconds would be considered prolonged. And again, uh, plasma would be our suggestion for how to approach that. Of note, cutoffs vary between labs and institution protocols, but those numbers are, uh, again, what are used here and are within the normal range that you'll see in, in other centers. Right. So, so next up is alpha angle. This measures the slope uh, of the line between R, when the clot started, and K, which is the time taken to achieve a clot strength amplitude of 20 millimeters. Uh, that slope can be thought of, really, as how rapidly the clot is forming once that cascade is activated. Uh, specifically, it's the early polymerization of fibrin. Yeah, so uh, if you're looking at the 
the tracing, uh, or if you can visualize it in your mind, how quickly that tracing splits and starts to you know, head up to its plateau, uh, that's what we're talking about here, that alpha angle. So less than 56 degrees for TEG indicates a deficit in fibrinogen. And these patients should be given cryoprecipitate, or if you have it available, a fibrinogen concentrate. Um, generally, that's not here, though. And cryo contains a lot of fibrinogen and, and some other factors, so it can speed up the clot and increase uh, that alpha angle so that it looks more like the normal tracing. Right. Now, but platelets are also involved in clot activation and conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin and clot formation. So, so a low alpha angle can also be due to platelet dysfunction or low platelets. Now, max amplitude, or MA, um, is next. MA measures the maximum amplitude of the clot in millimeters and represents the strength of the clot. So looking at that tracing, it's kind of the... How wide it is, Yeah, the biggest difference between the top and the bottom of the tracing. The MA is dependent on platelet number and function, and to a lesser degree, fibrinogen as well. Right. So a maximum amplitude, or MA, of less than 50 millimeters... Um, indicates platelet deficiency either in number or function. And patients with low MA should be given platelets then. But keep also in in mind the alpha angle, if it was also low, you can also give cryo since low fibrinogen is probably contributing both to your shallow alpha angle and your low MA. Right, so I'm hearing that platelets and fibrinogen are involved in alpha angle and MA. Right. And I think of it as fibrinogen contributing more to alpha angle with platelets a potential issue as well. But platelets are the primary contributor to MA or clot strength with fibrinogen perhaps contributing about 30% of that value. All right. All right. So finally, uh, LY30. So that stands for lysis at 30 minutes. This indicates the percentage decrease in amplitude at 30 minutes after maximum amplitude is reached. Uh, now, this part of the tracing uh, shows that the, how the clot is, is breaking down over time. Now, we all want clot to break down a little over time. Otherwise, we'd all be hypercoagulable and with thrombose vessels after minor trauma all the time. Hemostasis is a balance after all. Liquid blood running around in vessels and the clot in specific areas where that vessel integrity was compromised. Sure, sure. So an LY30 greater than 3% indicates hyperfibrinolysis. And this should be treated with tranexamic acid. And we give TXA as one gram over 10 minutes, followed by another gram over eight hours. Yeah, the use of TXA in trauma is supported by CRASH-2 and MATTERS, both large trials that you should be at least familiar with the names. Important to note, though, that only the patients who received TXA within three hours of injury benefited in CRASH-2. Okay, so if the injury was sustained longer than three hours ago, we typically don't use TXA. Yeah, in fact, uh, there were more thromboembolic events in the subset of patients who got TXA more than three hours after injury. So TXA does have its side effects and complications. All right, quick review, Patrick. I'm on it. Low ACT in our time. Boom, plasma. Low alpha angle. Fibrinogen, as in cryo, uh, or fibrinogen concentrate itself. Low max amplitude. Platelets, plus or minus cryo. High LY30. TXA. Okay. So let's shift gears and talk about how to reverse anticoagulants. Okay, so this is a particularly vexing topic without a doubt, and that's because things are changing really really rapidly, uh, impressively so. So let's say uh, we have, Jason, a little old lady who fell at home. She presents with altered mental status, 
and she's found to have an intracranial bleed on CT scan, and lo and behold, she's also on a blood thinner. Oh, of course. They always are. Always are. Interestingly, as much of a fan of TEG we may sound, TEG doesn't reliably pick up the anticoagulant effects of the most common drugs, including things like Coumadin and the novel anticoagulants like Eliquis. Yeah. So this is a, to me at least, a mind-boggling disconnect, right? So TAG is without a doubt useful. It's a useful test for clotting and coagulation, and it provides us with some good data. Um, but the fact that it doesn't show the effect of these agents is, is fascinating. And so, Jason, why, why do you... Why? Do you know why? Well, so Tell if, me I, why. if I could answer that, you would have seen my name more often, like in newspapers and billboards. Uh, but in fact, it's, it's not just TEG. So PT and PTT also miss the NOACs or direct oral anticoagulants, as I guess we're now supposed to call them. And the key word in describing all of this is reliable. So TEG will usually show a prolonged R and ACT for dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, but Coumadin isn't reliably detected. Now, an overdose of Xarelto will almost always prolong an ACT, but a normal therapeutic effect may be missed. And it, it, this may have something to do with uh, the activators, you know, KLN and tissue factor bypassing mm. some of the low levels of factors in both the extrinsic and intrinsic pathways. Uh, but remember, those pathways that we read about in books, that's not really the way clotting happens. It's way more complex than that. And so... For as much as TEG can be useful, it, it's still just a lab test. And all lab tests have their limitations and drawbacks. All right. Now, you threw out a bunch of different anticoagulants just now and what TEG does or doesn't do, what it doesn't pick up. So we're going to go through each of these, right, and how to reverse them. So let's start with the big daddy of them all, Coumadin, okay? Now, let's say that this patient, our nice old lady who came, is on a blood thinner. We found out that she was on Coumadin, and we checked her INR, and her INR is 3.0. All right. Well, that is elevated, right? INR of 1 is, is normal, and 2 and above is considered a therapeutic effect. So the higher the INR, the more I'm concerned about initial hematoma size, uh, progression of intracranial hemorrhage after admission, worse functional outcomes, and mortality. Right, so those, that correlation yeah, those is correlations strong, right? are, are well, well established, established in the literature. We yep. know if you have a high INR when you come in, your brain bleed is going to be worse. So how do I go about reversing the effects of Coumadin? Well, I would start with PCC, or prothrombin complex concentrate, using weight-based dosing. In the U.S., that brand name is Kcentra, and it contains factors 2, again, that's prothrombin, 7, 9, and 10. I would also give vitamin K and then recheck the INR in 30 minutes and reassess for additional dosing. Right. So let's talk about the specific dose. So suggested dosing for Kcentra is 25 units per kg if the INR is less than 4. 35 units per kg if INR is 4 to 6, and 50 units per kg if the INR is greater than 6. Mm-hmm. Now, in regards to vitamin K, uh, we'd want to give that vitamin K IV and give it slowly. So we'd give 10 milligrams to start. And we give it slowly because we want to avoid an anaphylactic reaction that if it can happen if you push it too quickly. So why the vitamin K, Jason? Well, the half-life of PCC is only a few hours. And remember, warfarin competitively inhibits the vitamin K that in, results in inhibiting the uh, activation of that vitamin K. So giving vitamin K provides the substrate for those dependent clotting factors like 2, 7, 9, and 10 to then be made 
later on, but that, that takes a few hours. Okay. So, Jason, uh, what if Case Center is not available? This is uh, expensive stuff, right? Right. It, I mean, it can be three to $5,000 per dose. So if Case Center wasn't available, um, then I would give FFP or another type of plasma, which is a good alternative, but it takes longer to give, and, and it can result in a large volume resuscitation if someone's INR is sky high. Right, and it, it's longer to give because you actually have, usually have to thaw the plasma and in some circumstances cross-match it before you infuse. Um, again, refer to our previous heady transfusion episode. Yeah. Uh, And one study actually found that it took around 30 hours and a total of eight units of plasma to get to a normal INR or 1.5 or or below. 30 hours? Yeah. A long time when someone has an ongoing uh, head bleed. Compared to K-Centra, right, which you would give and it takes effect in literally about 10 minutes. Yeah. Now, if you have thawed plasma or liquid plasma in your ER, your blood bank, those numbers would probably be a little better, but I can't imagine a situation where you're going to match the rapidity of PCC. Sure. Okay. All right. Let's move on. So let's say our patient was actually on Pradaxa, aka Dabigatran. Yeah. So Pradaxa is a direct thrombin inhibitor. Standard lab tests don't detect it unless someone has really high levels, uh, in which case it can show up as a prolonged PTT. However, supertherapeutic levels will generally prolong R uh, on a tag, as we discussed earlier. Right. And there is a reversal agent, though, right? And this is the most <laughs> the most – all these monoclonals are ridiculous. So it's called Praxbind, uh, but it's, it's – uh, uh, the brand, uh, the uh, what the generic, generic excuse me, the yeah. generic name is Idarucizumab. So Praxbind, Idarucizumab. Say that. A it's actually fin- phonetically spelled out for me to, to say, <laughs> and it looks ridiculous. And so this is an anti-dabigatran monoclonal antibody fragment. A typical dose is five milligrams times one, and if it's not available, then PCC is considered, uh, you know, a viable alternate, but but certainly if you have Praxbind and you do have a uh, Pradaxa overdose, that's the agent to give. Um, the, we should also mention uh, that this is one of the few agents that can be cleared with dialysis, uh, and absorption can also be prevented with activated charcoal if the last dose was ingested within right, about two hours. Now, the other uh, direct thrombin inhibitors you may run across are argachaban and bivalarudin, uh, both of which are given as infusions. And their effects can be measured with PTT. Now, importantly, both have short half-life. So argachaban, its half-life is 40 minutes, and bivalarudin is 25 minutes. So the first thing you want to do is turn off these drips. Now, PCC can be given as well if needed. Um, so uh, let's say the patient's husband just arrived, and as it turns out, the patient uh, uh, who presents with their head bleed is not on any of these direct thrombin inhibitors, but is instead on Xarelto. Hey, even better. So we can lump, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, all of the direct 10A inhibitors together. So the two most commonly used in the U.S. are rivaroxaban, a.k.a. Xarelto, and apixaban, a.k.a. Eliquis. The effects of 10A inhibitors can be measured using an anti-10A assay. They can also prolong PT, PTT, and R time on TAG, but keyword like we talked about is these tests aren't reliable. Not reliable. Yeah. Importantly, the half-life of these medications, uh, both around, uh, or all three are around 12 hours. Okay, so 12-hour half-life, which is nice and short, but not reliably picked up on PT, PTT, or TAG. 
But there is now a reversal agent, correct, Jason? Right. So there's a recombinant inactive form of factor 10A that acts as a decoy to bind 10A inhibitors called andonexate alpha or andexa. Okay, so the reversible agent Andexa has been available since January of 2019, so just recently. So it may not be widely available. So if it isn't, uh, what are we going to use to reverse Eliquizers or Alto? That would be PCC again. And again, like we talked about earlier, you can also use activated charcoal if the meds were taken recently. Okay, so quick question. What if I want to operate on a patient who is on a 10A inhibitor, and I actually don't need to reverse them right away. This is not the head injured patient. That's not with the bleed. How long do I have to wait before I take them to the OR? Good question. The answer is 48 hours, although you may be a little safer going um, you know, a little later than that. And conversely, it is also an option to speed that up a little bit and operate within the 48-hour window. And that often will be uh, enough time. Okay. All right. So let's say uh, that we switch it up a little bit, our our, our Anticoagulant of choice right now is actually a heparin drip or therapeutic uh, doses of low molecular weight, uh, a heparin, uh, a.k.a. Lovenox. So how do I go about treating a patient with a head bleed on a heparin drip or Lovenox? Well, Patrick, in the case of unfractionated heparin, I would recommend salmon sperm. <laughs> go on. <laughs> do tell me more. Or, or protamine sulfate, uh, which is still derived from fish sperm. Anytime you can work that into a podcast, you should. Yes. So hence all of its rare but potentially severe side effects. That's why we're mentioning it, uh, because it's a biologic agent. So those potentially severe side effects, which I think we've all seen to one degree or another, um, would include hypotension, anaphylaxis, pulmonary hypertension. Um, you can give one milligram of protamine for every 100 units of unfractionated heparin. All right, one milligram of protamine per 100 units of unfractionated heparin. All right, what about Lovenox? Protamine can be used, and so can Andexa. All right, so let's round this out with antiplatelets, shall we? Yeah. Okay. So first, some basic facts. The most commonly used antiplatelet agents are, as you would expect, aspirin and Plavix. Aspirin works by inhibiting COX-1 and Plavix by binding the ADP receptor and preventing activation. Both are irreversible and no antidote exists. Which is a problem for trauma surgeons and surgeons that all around is. the world. So antiplatelet agents work, and they work well. The routine use of antiplatelet therapy has shown a one-third reduction in non-fatal MI and a 25% reduction in non-fatal stroke. Right. But studies have also shown that antiplatelet agents are associated with a higher mortality in patients with intracranial hemorrhage. So what do you do? Do you just give a bunch more platelets is my question. I, I wish that were the yeah. simple answer, but unfortunately the answer is that it's complicated. There's no good data for showing that the administration of platelets for traumatic head bleeds reduces bleed size or improves outcomes. In fact, when it comes to non-traumatic or spontaneous head bleeds, the administration of platelets has actually been shown to worsen outcomes. Yeah, I'll be damned. Yeah, but uh, again, the data is limited, so it's very difficult to draw any conclusions, and so you'll often see but it given. This is tough. I mean, it's a real thing. I, I mean, every time, literally almost every time I'm on call, this happens. So when I'm on call tonight, Jason, and a cardiac patient who takes aspirin and Plavix shows up in my trauma bay, they have a legit head bleed. 
what am I going to do? Uh, do I, just, all, I withhold platelets? I am glad that you're taking my call tonight. So. <laughs> <laughs> what? Anyway, so in 2016, the Neurocritical Care Society made a conditional recommendation due to low-quality evidence that platelets should be transfused in patients with antiplatelet-associated intracranial hemorrhage only if they need to undergo a neurosurgical procedure. This is true regardless of the type of platelet inhibitor, platelet function testing, hemorrhage volume, or neuro exam. They also recommend platelet function testing if available, but when it's not available, empiric infusion of platelets may be reasonable. All right, so uh, kind of a mixed bag, a lot of hedging. Uh, What kind of testing options are there when it comes to antiplatelet agents? Yeah, the, the two most commonly used are the platelet function assay, or PFA100, which is a general measure of platelet function, and verify now as one word, uh, which has a specific test for aspirin and a separate one for platelets. Like credit check or something. Yeah, it is a little bit. What's your score? Uh, platelet mapping tag is also an option in some tenor. Okay. All right. So back to my bleeding patient in the trauma bay who is on platelets. Do I give platelets? Tonight. Tonight when I come in, head bleed, uh, I see it. Uh, I, even I, I can see it on the CT scan on Plavix and aspirin for cardiac stents that were placed five years ago. Well, what, what am I going to do? How's this for a hedge? There isn't really a right answer, so right. I would check your protocols and discuss with your neurosurgical colleagues. Right. And I think the latter part of that's important, right? You, we're, we manage and take care of and evaluate and stabilize patients with head bleeds, but the neurosurgeons are the experts in this area, and so really institutional protocols and, and what your colleagues also believe in this sense are, is, is hugely important. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's the best we're going to get today in that point. So there's one other thing. Uh, you could also consider the use of DDAVP, though, right, for platelet-related stuff? Right. Normally, we think of DDAVP as a treatment for patients with hemophilia A, von Willebrand's disease, and uremia, but it may also be useful in patients taking antiplatelet agents. Again, the data is very limited. But very it's, limited. Yep, but it suggests that DDAVP may improve bleeding time and or improve platelet function tests. Okay. All right, so I should note that DDAVP is given, uh, typically given as a single dose of 0.3 mics, uh, micrograms per kilogram. All right, Jason, let's wrap it up with a quick review. In the trauma setting, TAG can be used to guide massive transfusion and identify trauma-induced coagulopathy, including thrombolysis. You treat a prolonged R-time with plasma, a shallow alpha angle with cryoprecipitate or fibrinogen concentrate, a low max amplitude with platelets, and lysis with TXA. TEG does not reliably pick up the anticoagulation effects of most common drugs. Again, the keyword is reliably pick up these effects. This includes Coumadin and anticoagulant agents like Eliquis. We want to reverse Coumadin with PCC and vitamin K. We want to reverse Pradaxa with its antidote Praxbind or PCC if this is not available. Reverse Eliquis and Apixaban with their antidote Indexa or PCC if this is not available. Reverse unfractionated heparin with protamine and low molecular weight heparin with protamine or Indexa. And Plavix, unfortunately, can't be reversed. And interestingly enough, giving additional platelets may not be helpful. So that wraps it, us, wraps it up for us today. Jason, thank you ever so much for joining me. Until next time, dominate, dominate the, the day. day. Until next time, dominate the day.